Welcome into the Talking Tide podcast on the Belly Up Podcast Network. I'm Chase Goodbread, sports columnist with the Tuscaloosa News. Joined, as always, by Travis Ryer, the longtime senior analyst at BamaOnline.com. The Talking Tide Twitter feed, of course, is Talking underscore Tide. Get immediate links to all of our podcasts right away, right there on the Twitter feed. We're also live on YouTube and Facebook as well. And, of course, Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you prefer to get your podcasts, you can find us there as well. Talking Tide Podcast, sponsored locally by Peter Brook Chocolatier and Heat Pizza Bar. More on both of them a little bit later in the show. Travis, we dive right in, recapping Alabama's SEC championship game win over Georgia, 27-24. to Thrilling game for sure. Alabama then, in turn, picks up a CFP berth, a controversial CFP berth. We will dive into that toward the back end of the program. Certainly uh, uh, plenty to talk about in regards to that as well. But first, the game, Travis, Alabama uh, upsets Georgia. The Bulldogs, of course, were a five-point favorite in this one. 27-24, the final score. And, and really, Travis, to me, what stood out was a dominant second quarter for Alabama. It was the best quarter Alabama played in the game. It was a, a, a total rebound from a first quarter that went all kinds of wrong for Alabama for the most part. Two three and outs offensively for Alabama in their first two possessions. And then, of course, Georgia with their first offensive chance just marches straight down the field. Things look pretty bleak for sure. Uh, second quarter, though, Alabama completely got the thing turned around, took control of the game. And then in the second half, uh, they didn't uh, run away with it by any means, but they maintained control throughout the second half. Yeah, I think you could even reduce it down to end of each half, right? Uh, second quarter, fourth quarter, uh, answering uh, like it needed to. And you're right, Georgia got off to the fast start. Alabama offensively, not so much. But then the defense, I thought, for Alabama with a couple of steadying possessions against that Georgia offense. Georgia had a couple of three and outs after that 83-yard touchdown drive to open the game. I thought that was very important. And that seemed to help the offense find its footing because that sequence there at the end of the second quarter where it looks like Georgia is at least going to tie the game at 10 going into the half, but then Alabama ends up getting into the end zone to go up 10. And then in the fourth quarter, you know, the way Alabama closed out the game, uh, Georgia with a very impressive uh, punt return that helped set up a, uh, you know, a run of 10 points there for the dogs uh, in the fourth quarter. But then Alabama had answers too, you know, with the, the nine play 75 yard touchdown drive to go up 10 again. And then uh, to take the clock in six plays and 40 yards there with Jalen Milrow, doing a lot of that with his legs. Yeah, let's let's take it back to some of your first comments about how the defense kind of got things settled for Alabama after that first Georgia drive uh, that was so easy for the Bulldogs. Nick Saban referring to that very specifically, saying, hey, after they ate us up on that first touchdown drive, they went to split safeties and decided, hey, we're just going to try to stop the run with a little bit lighter box, fewer fewer in the box, I should say. And they were able to contain the run with, with, with two split safeties and, and uh, really made all the difference. Sounded like, though, from their film review and, and their preparation, uh, they were expecting not to be playing split safeties throughout the game. And 
and decided uh, we'll just we'll just roll with that after they saw what they saw on that opening Georgia drive. Yeah, Saban said that I guess Georgia was motioning to the field more or in a way that they hadn't really seen from Georgia. I guess they were anticipating more of that into the boundary and it was putting Alabama in some tough spots uh, on the back end too. You ended up with Jalen key and a couple of single high safety looks that didn't end so well for Alabama. And even after they went to more split safety, you know, Georgia still hit the explosive uh, to Arian Smith. I believe it was uh, there right. in the second half kind of caught uh, Alabama biting up really good route design too, because you had, Brock Bowers working kind of in front of that or behind it. And your inclination is to go with Bowers. And in doing so, you ended up with a speedster on Jalen Key. That that didn't go so well. But, yeah, I mean, Alabama made the adjustments. Um, it started with defense, uh, expanded to the offense there, took a couple series. But, you know, I thought Alabama established the line of scrimmage pretty well on offense early in the game. First quarter ran it between the tackles. Roydell Williams with some good stuff. Jam Miller uh, didn't really lean on Jalen to do it with his legs early in the game, but when they needed it most there, boy, Tommy Reese still had a few things in his bag uh, on that final possession, didn't he? Yeah, he did for sure. Uh, the offensive line, we'll, we'll go there. I thought they played a excellent game for Alabama. I really did. I thought they showed me something. I'll be the first one to admit I thought Alabama's offensive line was maybe the weak spot for Alabama, maybe the weakest unit of, of either team altogether uh, going into this game. I, I, I thought that was a, a pretty serious concern. I thought they played well, Travis. Uh, Milrow's sacks, to my eye, were more about Milrow holding the ball too long than it was about time to throw. I thought they gave him time to throw. Um, at some On some throws, he had all day. Uh, so – they did a good job in pass protection for sure. Running the ball, they were solid with Roydell Williams for sure. And again, I, I think the the sack yardage kind of sullied the box score on how it looked as far as Alabama's run game. Milrow lost 38 yards in sacks. Um, Alabama ran the ball for 2.8 yards a carry, but if you throw those sacks out, it was almost four yards a carry. Um, and to your point in the second quarter, after those first two, three and outs, when they started getting things going, it was the running game. And in particular, the running game on first down, that got the team moving. They ripped off three straight runs of eight yards on first downs. Uh, once they finally got it together, um, I think it was on their third offensive possession and, you know, from there, Georgia's defense responded and did some counter punching, but. Uh, Alabama's offense um, pulled itself together and really had to because we've seen this team, and this is something I wrote for the team news, we've seen this Alabama team wait until the second half to come alive a few times this season. Can't do that against Georgia. Uh, and and they came alive uh, in the second quarter, which, which they had to. Yeah, it's kind of like the 2021 game from that perspective because Georgia and that one got out to the 10 nothing lead. And then Alabama, at a very critical juncture, albeit early in that game, answered in a big, big way. We saw it again this time around on Saturday night. And, yeah, I think that, you know, when you look at the, the flip of the script, so to speak, um, you're right. It, it did start with the run game on offense and, uh, you know, and just – 
different guys stepping up throughout the game. I know we'll talk about it defensively, but Kool-Aid McKinstry goes out. Trey Amos plugs in. Christian Story did some nice things in that dime package. Uh, and this, you're right, the offensive line, it, it took a little bit of a, uh, uh, a different route in ultimately getting here, but there's no question uh, Alabama up front playing its best. You know, I thought one of the sacks of Jalen there, maybe in the second half where he, he thought he wasn't down, he kept running. Mm-hmm. That sack, it looked like maybe a little bit of a miscommunication between Caden Proctor and Tyler Booker because Proctor tried to help down first and then Walker for Georgia ended up winning off the edge. But, uh, you know, I've said this about Jalen too. I, I agree. There are times where he still hangs onto the ball. But if you're Nick Saban and you're Tommy Reese, and if you're an Alabama fan for that matter, you'd still rather see that than the interceptions like you saw against Texas. You know, you're still taking some sacks, uh, but it's still better than the alternative. It is. And it's if you're Jalen Milrow, it's a fine line to walk to because on the one hand, you got people in your ear saying, look, hang in the pocket, go through your 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 progressions, try to get to that third read, try to get to that fourth read if you're able to. Uh, but then the flip side of that is, hey, don't hold on to the ball too long, right? Go, go get eight, 12 yards on the ground if you can. Uh, so, you know, th- those two concepts kind of tug at each other, and it puts Jalen Milrow in, in, in a place where he's got a uh, – He's got a quarterback, a pretty fine line in that regard. He does. And Georgia did get more aggressive. You know, they kind of came out and went with three man pass rush with a spy or two there in the middle of the field. That's how they got him on the first sack. Kind of had everything covered up. And then when he wanted to run, you know, they had a couple of guys there waiting on him to to ditch uh, on that first possession of the game. But as Alabama took more control of the game, it got later and Alabama still had that double digit lead. I thought you saw. Georgia starting to bring it, and that's why the touchdown drive that really featured Isaiah Bond was so impressive on multiple levels, starting with Reese and how he called that sequence because it's like he anticipated that blitz when they hit Bond right there in the middle of the field. You know, they replaced the blitzing linebacker. It's a perfect play call to Bond, and that really jump-started that drive at 20-17 to 17 that ultimately got Alabama back to a two-score lead. Yeah, Bond did almost all of his damage on that late touchdown drive. And, of course, the shovel pass isn't quite the right word for it. But whatever that desperation flip from Milrow to Bond uh, was that turned into a, another big play and a first down for Alabama, that was that was huge, too. Uh, had the big catch at that, the end of the first half that, you know, Georgia fans yes. might want to debate a little bit, too. No doubt. So Bond comes up big toward the end. Also big, bear in mind, the touchdown pass to Jermaine Burton, that was a fourth down throw, fourth and four, I think it was. Uh, so that was that was a huge one as well. Um, Burton almost had another touchdown catch a little bit later in the game that he wasn't quite able to hang on to. Uh, but uh, big plays for sure on that. And, and And like you alluded to earlier, Taking the air out of the ball with three minutes to go at the end of the game. Offensive line, a big part of that. Uh, the running game got that job done. And um, really, I, I think when 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 Alabama was – when Milrow broke that long run to near midfield, uh, at that point, there's still a couple minutes to go left in the game. I think Georgia might have had two timeouts left. And at that point, 
that, that you know, once you break that long run and get it to midfield, it's not just burning clock anymore. Now you're close enough to Rikers field goal range where you got to think a little bit about, okay, yeah, we, we want to burn clock, but if, if we got a shot at three points here, we need to grab it. And they ultimately that didn't need to happen. They burned out the clock and, and, uh, didn't kick a field goal, but there was a, a, a moment or two there, a play or two where I, I thought the the coaching staff, um, really, really ought to have dual consideration right there, not just burning clock, but, but Hey, um, you know, a field goal changes the game. If you go from up three to up six, I thought it was interesting too, talking about sort of clock management, how Georgia did cut it to 27, 24 with a little under three minutes to go, but they had to burn a timeout to do it when you could have just kicked the field goal and made it a one score game, kept the timeout, I guess, you know, one, two different ways you can look at that, but that put Georgia in a tougher spot than when Alabama was able to take the clock on that final possession. I guess the biggest mystery to me on that whole drive was after you get the first down with Jalen up the middle on the keeper, um, Georgia's got one timeout left with a 121 or so, and Alabama lines up and hands the ball to Roy Dell Williams. And I'm thinking, can't you just kneel on the ball here? You know, Georgia only has one timeout left. So right. I thought that was a little bit harrowing. But, you know, things happen down the stretch of a game. And, boy, again, can't say enough good things about Tommy Reese because I was starting to wonder at 20 to 17, is Tommy going to go into a little bit of a shell here? You know, this is as big of a moment for him as a coach mm-hmm. as he's been involved with. No question about it. I know he was at Notre Dame. I know he coached in a college football play. No, 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 no. This was it. And so at 20 to 17 and understanding that Georgia was going to be aggressive and, and kind of come after Alabama offensively, what did uh, Reese have ready? And boy, those last two possessions, he had plenty ready between the passing game, between design quarterback runs. Uh, there was still uh, enough in his bag to get Alabama home. I'll tell you what I, What also I thought was kind of a, a hidden and f- somewhat forgotten about impact on the clock toward the end of the game, significant impact. When the video re- replay ruled Isaiah Bond short of the goal line on Alabama's last touchdown drive, well – they took two plays to punch it in with Roydell Williams. Yeah. That burned a minute. That, that burned a out. minute. It didn't work the clock. Out. Yeah. Georgia would have been better off if that would have been yep. a touchdown for Bond instead of having to play a couple mm-hmm. more downs. Um, kind of forgotten about, but at the end of the game, Georgia would have loved to have had that minute back on the clock. You know that. Yeah, just situations in a three-point game, right? Um, uh, it essentially comes down to – Three points off a turnover for Alabama, too. Georgia gets a little fancy with the ball handling deep on its own end. Did some things I don't know if I would recommend with the football at that area of the field, but did it. And uh, Trez Marshall comes up with the big fumble recovery. Alabama settles for three there, and you're thinking, man, that was kind of a missed opportunity to push this thing back to 24-10 going into the fourth quarter, and then you feel really, really good about your chances. But at the end of the night, you know, Woodring for Georgia as a 50-yarder that's a 50-yarder because of a snap, uh, a pre-snap penalty from 45, that if it's from 45, it's probably good instead of hitting the upright. You know, these are the things that uh, you go back and forth with in a game like that. 
Speaking of ball security, Alabama's offense lately has done a tremendous job with ball security. I mean, the turnovers have basically disappeared for this offense over the last month or so of the season and certainly came up big against Georgia because that one turnover that Georgia had was was huge. Uh, Alabama needed seven, frankly, off that turnover, but they were able to get three in a three-point game, so it made a big, big difference. Yeah, and the clinching run by Jalen, he actually lost the football. It was a nice play by Bullard. Desperation play to kind of punch that out, but Milrow is able to essentially fall right on top of it as he's converting that final first down. And there's still, you know, there's still a minute 50 left in the game when that happens, and it's a three-point yeah. game. So, again, one of those things that kind of go your way uh, that go a long way in winning. But the backs, man, throughout the season, I've talked about them a couple of times. Just can't give enough credit to Roy Dell Williams, Jace, when he's been in there, Jam Miller. Uh, those guys especially have been rock solid where ball security is concerned. I, they they do not give it up. They played well for sure. Roy Dell Williams with a, with a strong performance. Uh, Miller got in there, scored the big touchdown pass as well. Um, made his impact. And Trez Marshall, like you said, former Georgia Bulldog transfer, just like Jermaine Burton, had the fumble recovery. Also had a TFL on a third and one, I think, in the first half uh, that forced a punt. Um, yep. a pretty good short yardage defense from Alabama in this game, too. I think there was another third and short where Terry and Arnold and, and Kool-Aid McKinstry Same combined point. for for yeah. a stop that, that forced a, a punt to slow things down as well. And you mentioned Amos's work in replacing the McKinstry role. And, of course, Amos has played a lot of football anyway. But when McKinstry goes out, well, now your role is a lot different and a lot bigger uh, as, it, you know, for Amos. First play that Amos went in there after McKinstry went out, they went right at him mm-hmm. uh, into the end zone. He was able to, to make a play there. He got two PBUs for the game. Pretty sure that was one. And, of course, the other one should have been a pick. I know Amos hated not to come up with uh, what could have been a second turnover for Alabama, but he was in position to make a play, broke it up, uh, incompletion, big there nonetheless. Yeah, Alabama had uh, opportunities with about three interceptions. You had that one with Trey Amos, Christian Story jumping a middle-of-the-field route to Brock Bowers, and Kool-Aid uh, nearly had one in yes. Arnold in coverage too. So. It was plus one in the turnover margin. Could have been plus three or four if Alabama if Alabama is able to convert those opportunities. But yeah, you're right. I mean, as soon as Kool Aid went out, Georgia Mike Bobo had kept this one in his back pocket because it was sort of a two back look where you got Bowers in the backfield and you got him on the left side of Beck and then the back on the right side. And they had run this sort of outside zone earlier where Bowers is leading the way as sort of a blocker. And they had set it up where instead of blocking, he was just going to keep running. And that's mm-hmm. what he did. But for a guy just into the football game like that, uh, Trey Amos, and this is a guy, as you said, he's played a lot of football. Yeah. So, you know, there's a maturity there with him, obviously, but still very impressive what he was able to do. You know, it's always been interesting to me, Travis, the way, you know, offensive coordinators love looking for mismatches and exploiting personnel on the other side when they think they can make a big play, uh, get a big time player on somebody you think can't play defensively. 
for whatever reason, defensive coordinators just don't think the same way. And I guess if you're a DC, you're really just talking about the offensive line that you might be able to exploit. But look, if I'm a defensive coordinator and I'm looking at film and I see that the other team has got one guy on the offensive line that's just a total disaster, and that hap- and that happens a lot. I'm putting my stud on him, and I'm gonna put him on my stud on that guy all day. DCs just don't think that way, though, Travis. They're more in the in the mindset of we're just gonna do our thing, we're gonna play our game, we're gonna play our system. Yeah, and and same thing with uh, corners. A lot of times, you know, you think, why don't you just take your best corner and put him? on the other team's best receiver, travel him as they call it, wherever that receiver goes, send that corner with them. You just don't see it. You see corners play left and right. You see corners play field and boundary. Um, but you don't often see many that, that travel with a specific receiver. I thought going back a month, I thought Caden Proctor was going to see a lot of Harold Perkins in that LSU game. It didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think LSU this year defensively did a lot of folks favors in trying to use Perkins more as a utility backer, dropping him in coverage and playing him like a star defensive back at times. Hey, uh, I'm all for versatility, uh, and that maybe that's a good thing, but I can tell you what Harold Perkins is going to get paid on. Harold that's Perkins right. is going to get paid on getting after quarterbacks, not playing in coverage. So I think Alabama and the other teams this season are like, yeah, we think that's great. Yeah, show off everything he can do because that means he's not working against our freshman left tackle. Who, by the way, Caden Proctor with another really solid performance uh, in his latest effort. And uh, boy, it's just it's uh, kind of exciting to think about what the next couple of years might look like for that guy. Come a long way since September. There's absolutely no question about that. All right, the Talking Tide podcast on the Belly Up Podcast Network. Going to thank a couple of sponsors now. Really quickly, going to start by telling you all about Heat Pizza Bar in downtown Tuscaloosa in Government Square. You're looking for the best pizza in town. You got to go to Heat and see Frank Fleming and his staff. They've also got a full bar, flat screen TVs all over the place with all the sports you want to watch. And of course, super pizza. They've got some fine salads, sides, uh, just about anything under the sun pizza wise. And uh, it's fantastic. Great atmosphere, too family-friendly atmosphere. You're trying to get away from the strip a little bit. Take the family downtown. Get them over to Heat Pizza Bar. They got that ice skating rink going on right now, Travis, as That's well, cool. uh, over in Government Square. They bring it every uh, every December. Uh, so lots of fun going on right down there in Government Square, 2256th Street in Government Square Plaza. Going to tell you about Peterbrook Chocolatier, 1530 McFarland Boulevard North in the Indian Hills section of Tuscaloosa. I know you're a procrastinator, just like I am, especially when it comes to holiday gifting. Let Peterbrook make you a superstar, a five star when it comes to Christmas gifting. Give them a call at 205 752 0211. Get those Christmas orders in. Whether it's stockings, whether it's parties, boy, they can take care of you with all those great treats, those sweet treats right there at Peterbrook Chocolatier, 1530 McFarland Boulevard North in the Indian Hills section of Tuscaloosa. All right, the Talking Tide podcast on the Belly Up Podcast Network, the Twitter feed, Talking underscore Tide. Going to turn to the CFP to close out the show, Travis, Alabama 
gets in as the four seed, the uh, the selection committee, with unquestionably the toughest decision it's ever had to make in 10 years of existence. FSU stays home at 13 and 0. You hate it for the Seminoles. Had a phenomenal year. You talked to the, you know, and and I I read Mike Norvell's comments uh, and I didn't disagree with a word of it. I don't know how Mike Norvell looks his team in the eye and explains how this happened. At the same time, uh, Alabama beat the number one team in the CFP rankings, and I don't think there's any question that Alabama is one of the best four teams in the country. They make the field. They're going to be taking on Michigan. Over in the Rose Bowl in a CFP semifinal, that game is going to be on New Year's Day as well, of course, uh, the other semifinal. Uh, but your thoughts on how things kind of shook out uh, from the committee, Travis? Yeah, it is. It's not good for Florida State. You feel for the Seminoles 13-0 and with nowhere to go. Well, you go to Miami, and now as a reward for finishing fifth in the CFP uh, rankings on Sunday – you get Georgia that's not going to be a happy football team that's still going to be very talented. Now, the crazy thing and the X factor with so much of this is going to be player availability between NFL draft decisions, between portal possibilities. Uh, You just don't know what's going to come of a lot of this in the non-CFP games, Uh, but it's rough. I mean, I'm a big Jordan Travis fan. I think Florida State, in terms of roster from top to bottom this season, very much in line with a top four team in the college football playoffs. So it's a tough spot. Ultimately, it's on the committee to get the best four teams in it. And I still think right now, Florida State, without Jordan Travis, isn't a better team than Alabama with Jalen Milrow. So if it's going to come down to those two teams and the resumes are comparable, and they are, they're very comparable. You know, I know, I know Florida State is a is an undefeated team, 13 and 0. But you know, Alabama was 9 and 0 in SEC play this year. There's something to be said about that too. Uh, it, it, it's it's a good thing in some ways that it's going to 12. I think it's bad in in plenty of ways too that we're going to 12. But just on the heels of what has happened this one time, uh, the transition to 12 it, it seems pretty timely. Yeah, if you wanted validation on going to 12, this particular year, the final year of the four-team field, definitely provided it. Uh, Like you said, the injury definitely a factor. And the injury factor, it's not like it hadn't been written in the CFP guidelines for 10 years. It's always been there. It's not like like they just made that up uh, to keep Florida State out. It's the first time I can recall them ever publicly leaning uh, on that particular part of the charter uh to uh to select or not select a team in the top four but schedule strength of schedule definitely a factor Florida State strength of schedule yeah. uh 58th 55th somewhere in that neighborhood Alabama the number five schedule in the country uh that played a factor but it came down to this Travis the CF the minute Louisville lost that ACC title game to Florida State the committee was going to have to do one of three things that it's never done either leave out an undefeated Power 5 team or leave out an SEC champion or leave out a one-loss Power 5 team that boasts a win over a qualifier. It's never done any of those three things, and it was going to have to do one of those three things this year uh, because leaving Texas out would have been 
leaving out a one a one loss power five team with a, with a with a win over a qualifier you know if, if Alabama had gone in FSU being the unbeaten power five and Alabama being the at the SEC champion you know that there's no doubt in my mind the committee was absolutely loath uh, to to deal with that choice uh, in the in the eleventh hour yeah I think at the end of things the argument to put Florida State in without its starting quarterback would have been well you're not going to have an SEC team in it. In other words, the path would be more friendly to an FSU team that doesn't have its starting quarterback in, as opposed to if you put Florida State in at four and Georgia had one out at the one. You, you really want to see that game in a yeah. college football playoff? Ultimately, it came down to you know really a three-team tournament if you put Florida State in. that That's just the way I viewed it. And without SEC representation – the legitimacy of the college football playoff would have been very much in question this time. Validation for the winner. You know, it would have been more, well, yeah, Michigan won it, Texas won it, but, you know, they didn't have to go through an SEC team to get there in the playoff. So, and I know you can say Texas already beat Alabama. Well, that was in September. I think a lot of people would like to see that one run back and maybe we'll get that in Houston. Could happen. What about, what about the ticket man, in Texas, if the Longhorns get there and it's either Michigan or Alabama in Houston yes. in the national yes. championship, the Lone Star ticket man would be pretty happy about that one. He's going to be raking them in in Houston if Texas is there, no matter who they're playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, if Texas gets there, he's he's golden. Could be a lot of uh, kind of offense, offense in that other semifinal and defense, defense. Uh, to a, maybe a lesser extent in the Alabama semifinal, but I'm expecting a fun game and a whole lot of points in that other semifinal, Travis, between UW and the Longhorns. Yeah, the uh, Sark Bowl, I guess, because Sark with his coaching ties to UW, uh, UW back in the day, and you're right, could be kind of bula ball with Alabama and Michigan. Boy, you talk about two teams that like tight ends. Alabama the other night or against Georgia – some 11 personnel, some 12 personnel, some 13 personnel, some 14 personnel. So mm-hmm. uh, B-Y-O-T-E, bring your own tight ends <laughs> to uh, Pasadena. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Talking Tide podcast. Just a little programming note. Travis and I are going to be probably a little bit more sporadic uh, coming up over the remainder of this month with Alabama taking – a break um, and the holiday coming forward. We'll probably come back and, and do a recruiting show with signing day, I guess, coming up here in a couple of weeks, Travis, uh, and, and preview uh, the CFP, of course. Uh, but uh, keep an eye on the Twitter feed. We'll let you know what's going on. For Travis Ryer of BamaOnline.com, I'm Chase Goodbread, sports columnist with the Tuscaloosa News. We will talk to you next time on Talking Tide.